Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. We really do. I meditate often on just the, the wonder and the beauty of who you are. As I sit in a, in a morning like this, and, and just this past week, I look at how you've redeemed me, Lord. How you've changed me. How you took this, this broken young man who was on a path of death and destruction. And you called me. And you changed me. And you set me on this path of life. This path of joy. And gave me an incredible woman, Lord. That has walked alongside of me through my entire journey that I'm so thankful for. You've given me an incredible congregation, Lord, of brothers and sisters that continually point me to worship you, to serve you, to love you, to honor you. Lord, all of these things, all of these people, they humble me. You humble me, Lord. You are beautiful and you are glorious. And we're here to talk about you this morning, your resurrection, your power, and the effect that it has and can have in each one of our lives. So capture our attention this morning, Lord. Our minds, our hearts, let us see and understand truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin this morning a little bit differently, but I want to begin with a question. And the question, don't hear this in condemnation, don't hear this with a finger in your chest, just an honest question. Why are you here this morning? Think about it for a second. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot something down. But why? Why are you here this morning? For some of you, this is, this is what you want to do. Week in and week out, you want to come and worship. You want to gather with fellow believers, and this is why you're here. You're here to worship. You're here to serve. You're here to learn. You're here to grow. Some of you came here because it's, it's somebody invited you. Some of you are here because somebody pressured you. But there's a reason why we've all gathered here this morning. What I want to read through, this is a Gallup poll that was released just this weekend, uh, this past week on April 18th. So you can look this up on Google. I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, again, Gallup released April 18th, titled U.S. Church Membership Down Sharply in the Past Two Decades. I'm going to read through some statistics here to begin. It says, Gallup finds the percentage of Americans who report belonging to a church averaging 50% in 2018. U.S. church membership was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976. So again, just get, listen to the context. And for me, I kind of sit in this personally. I was born in 1976. So for the 60 years before I was born, those who were actively pursuing their relationship with Jesus in a community of believers was roughly 70%, give or take, uh, consistently for 60 years. But in the year that I was born, in 76, it starts to drop off a little bit over the next 20 years. But then in the year that I was born, 1999, it says the past, since then, the past 20 years have seen an acceleration in the drop-off, a 20% point decline since 1999, and more than half of that change occurring since the start of the current decade. So we want to ask the question, what's happened in our culture in the last 20 years? What's happened since 1999 and on? 
What's happened over the last decade in our culture, in our congregations, that would result in this kind of decline in our culture? It says the decline in church membership mostly reflects the fact that fewer Americans than in the past now have any religious affiliation. However, even those who identify with a particular religion are less likely to belong to a church or other place of worship than in the past. Since the turn of the century, the percentage of U.S. adults with no religious uh, affiliation has more than doubled from 8 to 19%. So that means that one out of five people that you interact with out in this world has zero religious affiliation. Says 77% of Americans identify with some organized religion that is down from 90% in 1998. Listen to that. In 1998, 90% of Americans considered themselves to belong to one religious group or another, but today it's 77%. 73% of U.S. adults with a religious preference belonged to a church then compared to 64% now. So even those who say, hey, I do belong to this particular group, um, even those are avoiding um, those who... Hold their similar faith. So it says the nature of Americans' orientation to religion is changing, with fewer religious Americans finding membership in a church or other faith institution to be a necessary part of their religious experience. Part of this is the generational uh, things that are going on, and here's their conclusion. This is Gallup's implications. Although the United States is one of the more religious countries, particularly among Western nations, it is far less religious than it used to be. The rate of U.S. church membership has declined sharply in the past two decades after being relatively stable in the six decades before that. So here's the challenge, they say. The challenge is clear for churches, which depend on loyal and active members to keep them open and thriving. How do they find ways to convince some of the unaffiliated religious adults in society to make a commitment to a particular house of worship or their chosen faith? Talks about that we must grapple with the generational slide. In other words, the older generation has not handed the baton of their relationship uh, religiously to the young generation. Says America's eroding confidence in the institution of organized religion is it's eroding. While organized religion is not the only U.S. institution suffering a loss of confidence, Americans have lost more confidence in it than in most other institutions. That is sad. Americans who are religious may also be changing their relationship to churches. They may not see a need to or have a desire to to belong to a church and participate in a community of people with similar religious beliefs. And this is how it's playing out in reality. Thousands of US churches are closing each year. And that's a, that's a real statistic. Thousands of congregations are closing their doors every single year. It says religious Americans in the future will likely be faced with fewer options for places of worship and likely less convenient ones, which could accelerate the decline in membership even more. So my question as I ramble through all of those statistics is what's missing from everything that I just mentioned? Jesus. 
This, this statistic, it's calling people, and over 7,000 people, households are participating in this uh, statistical study. And as they're calling people, they're not asking them questions about their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're asking themselves about who they choose to affiliate with on a weekly basis when it comes to the idea of church. And let me tell you right now, like our gathering here this morning, this is not about a building. This is not about the organization Calvary Chapel. This is not about the Pastor Blake. This is not about you as individuals. We are here solely because a man named Jesus rose again from the dead. And we're going to sit in this topic this morning. What is missing from the older generation? What is missing from the younger generation? What is missing from uh, the church's voice in the community is the power behind the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power that he has over life because he is the initiator of life. He is life. And then the effect that that resurrection has upon individuals who choose to believe in that life. So we can talk about the resurrection often and easily and have it totally miss its impact in its reality of what it means. So as we sit in the topic of Easter, what, what comes to your mind when you just say Easter? Usually it's bunnies and chocolates and candies. I was in Target with my wife getting Easter candy for our kids because we're going to sugar them up because that's what we like to do. Um, Pringles had an Easter can. So everybody hops on the, uh, the commercial. What? What'd I say? Hops, hot. <laughs> Pun wasn't intended. I didn't even get it. See, my brain's already 20 sentences ahead. <laughs> but commercial America, what do we do? We're trying to make money. And here, again, the emphasis upon this poll is that the churches, that they need to find ways, to new ways to convince people. Become one with us. Why? So that we can take your money to sustain what we want to do. That's the heart that they think of what churches are doing as organizations. We don't want your money. I want you to be passionately in love with and seeking moment by moment the one who created you, who loves you, who has sustained you, who is your life. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to this account of Lazarus. Um, you can flip a page over to chapter 12, verse 17. And in chapter 12, verse 17, this is a, a section that I skipped over last week. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and here comes the king of glory into his city. He's fulfilling prophecy, and the Jews know he's fulfilling prophecy, and they're singing this song out of Psalm 118, save us, save us from the oppression of the Romans. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's riding on this donkey in humility. Jerusalem, here comes your king. Rejoice, sing. But the, the, the detail that I skipped over last week is this man, Lazarus. So here in verse 17 of chapter 12 of John, it says, The people who were with him, with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. So think about this. As Jesus is coming in, those who watched the story 
the reality occurred. They're telling people what this man, Jesus of Nazareth, did. They're bearing witness. And it says, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And that, 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 uh, you know, that sentence that's uh, out of the mouth of the enemies, that's out of the mouth of people who want Jesus dead and to go away. They don't want his influence. They don't want his religion. They don't want his God. They're trying to hold on to themselves and their power. But they're saying, look, look at the reason why the whole world is going after him. Why? Because this man has the power over life and death. So when you sit in the account of John chapter 11, you're sitting in this account, which is one of three that we have in the Gospels of Jesus as a man having the power over death. So the first one we have in Luke, it's Luke chapter 7. You have him raising a widow's son from death. Another one is in Mark chapter 5. This is dealing with Jairus' daughter that he brings this child back from death. And here we have this account of Lazarus. So verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was, the Mary who anoint, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And hold on to that as a foundational. This is what is occurring in Lazarus's life is for God's glory and for the Son of God, Jesus, to be glorified in this circumstance and situation. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus is not the sister, that's the brother. See, I caught myself there. Um, but again, this is, this is identifying for us. This is who these people are. This is where they're from. This is these specific people that, as John is writing, these are real historical figures. They really had a friendship with Jesus. They had a relationship. They had a love and respect for one another. They obviously, believing in who he is and in what he was doing and what he was teaching, looking to him in hope, says that after this, he said to his disciples, uh, sorry, uh, verse 6, it says, So when he heard that he was sick, Jesus stayed there for two more days in the place where he was, which is very strange. Again, if we hear that somebody's sick, if we hear that somebody's in trouble, somebody sends you a message, you're going to drop what you're doing and you're going to go to them. Jesus remains and he's remaining for a purpose. It says, after this, he says to his, to his disciples, let's go into Judea again. The disciples say to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And now are you going there again? So that account is in chapter 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And what Jesus is teaching them is that he is fully aware of what the will of his father is. 
Jesus is not seeking, um, he's not intentionally placing himself in unknown danger that the Jews are going to stone him if he shows up in Judea again. He's, he's following the will of his father. He knows that the sickness is to bring about his father's glory and his own glory. He's walking in the light. He's not walking in darkness. And then he says to them, after that, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. The purpose that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Clearly not understanding what is going on. And here's, here's the subject matter that we need to sit in in life and that we need to sit in this morning is that death is the great whore. When you think about how horrific death is, this is why horror movies, they're all revolving around death. They're called horror movies because it is a horrific event. Just in this past week, we have Blake in our congregation. His uncle passed away this week. Last week, we have John, his friends. They lost a three-month-old baby, Harmony, this week. Death is a very real thing that all of us have encountered in different ways through family, through friends, whether they were aged, whether they were young, and every single one of us that has breath in our lungs today, us in this room, we have a death before us that is staring us in the face. And this is, this is important to me personally because I can remember, this is, these are my first memories in regards to the importance of life. Asking the questions about what is life? Where am I from? Why am I here? These kinds of things. I was a 13-year-old kid. And I can remember having these thoughts at night as I'm going to sleep, fearing death. Death was a horror to me. Without having any real religious background, without having any real information about Jesus Christ, I knew at that moment in life, should I shut my eyes and die, there would be darkness. But for me, I knew that it would be conscious darkness. And I don't have any definition to give to you other than I didn't hear anything on the, on the TV. I didn't have anybody speaking any information to me. I can look back on that event in my life. And I can understand that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me as a 13-year-old young man. Blake, your death is coming. And your death apart from me is horrific. Now, I didn't have that. I didn't have that information until I went to this marriage conference where I understood who this man Jesus Christ was. And the power that he had, not just over, for here we're going to watch him have the power over somebody else's death, but the power that he had over his own death to take his life back into himself. But as we sit in this idea that the, the great horror of life is death, we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 15 later where it says that the sting of death is sin. So if we, if we bring it just into an analogy, what is the sting of a bee? The sting of a bee is it's poison. 
If you have an allergy to it, you can die from the sting of a singular bee. If you don't have an allergy to it and you get stung by a whole bunch of bees, you can die. And the picture that we're given, the sting of death, death's sting into each one of us is the consequence of sin. This is where we sit in the narrative of the entire word of God. God created everything good, but Adam and Eve did what? They sinned. And what sin means is that they missed perfection. God said, don't. And they did it anyways. They missed God's perfection. They missed his holiness. And the result of that was sin. And sin brings about this death in every single human being. So from the moment that we are created in existence, we are all subject to this sting. Death has stung each and every one of us. And some die early, some die young, some die sick, some die, well, everybody dies of sickness. Nobody dies of good health, right? But we're all looking at this death, this horror in the face. And this begins to be what Jesus is teaching about. This is why he came. He is demonstrating, he is giving a visual, real picture of his power and his authority over death so that what? So that when he rises from the dead, as he is promised to his disciples, when this event happens, this is the singular message that the disciples go out with, that everybody who steps into that resurrection, into him in faith, has that same power of life and hope over death. Death is a great horror. And the physical death that we are watching here, where physical death separates an individual from those who are still living, spiritual death is a separation. Spiritual death separates us from the life of God. So the, what we are seeing on the physical side of things, it is a mirror of what is happening on the spiritual side of things. So when Adam and Eve sinned in that day that they disobeyed God, Death entered in. They were stung. And then there was a slow process of their physical death. So here in verse 17, it says, Jesus came. He found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. So remember, this is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives that we were talking about last week. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, the mourning that's associated with death. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the day, in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. Now look at what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. If I said that to you, what would you think? 
It would be, this, this, is, this is language that is very strange. She's sitting with her religious teacher. She believes very specific things about Jesus as the Messiah. And her religious teacher is responding to her mourning, knowing she believed that he had the power to heal Lazarus from his sickness. Lord, if you were here, my brother would still be here. Because I've witnessed your power elsewhere. She had that faith and that understanding. And Jesus' response to her says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He's declaring that he is the source of life, that he is the power behind life. When you talk about resurrection, the idea of resurrection, it's that somebody has been called out from among the dead ones. Somebody has been called out from among the corpses. This is what resurrection means. There's a cemetery. There is a graveyard. Everybody there is dead. And one who has been resurrected is he was dead, she was dead, and they are now back to life. That is what this idea of resurrection is. Which in your testimony in life, in your witness of life, how many of you have been to funerals and have you ever seen anybody stand up from being dead? We, have te- we hear testimonies of things. Somebody, uh, you know, there's all kinds of books out there and movies about this person was dead for this period of time, you know, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. They saw all these things. They heard all these things. They come back and bear testimony of the things that they saw. You know, there's those kinds of testimonies and witnesses uh, that we have sat in. And same thing with the testimonies that we see in the Bible. Even Lazarus, him coming back to life, being resurrected, he died again. So some would say it's not necessarily a resurrection, but it's a resuscitation because he came back to life. But this man's very dead. Yes, he's been dead for four days. And his declaration, Jesus' declaration, what is pouring out of his mouth is, I am the one who will call you out from among the dead ones. But what does, he, what does he necessitate? That he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So physical and spiritual death and life being referred to here. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes. She's not looking for Jesus to go walking to the tomb and to cause her brother to come back to life. She's looking at Jesus in hope that I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you have the power that on the last day, On that day when God gives to you the kingdom, the forever kingdom, that that's when the resurrection will happen. Some, it's going to be the resurrection of the righteous to reward, to eternal life. And others who don't believe, it's the resurrection of the wicked, those who are abiding in sin. And it says it's the resurrection of them to judgment. This is one of the... It's, it's difficult in its, in its proclamation. Um, for me, the first time that I heard this kind of information, my heart was responding and leaping out to this because I knew my own personal sickness. Like I knew the darkness that I was living in. 
I was experiencing the, the consequence of that sting of death. I knew that I was on a path that was not right. And I knew this before I ever met Julie because the Holy Spirit was convicting me. Blake, the things that you were doing and the life that you were living, it's wrong. I can remember sitting with my mom at the kitchen table. Mom, this is not who I want to be. I was abiding under that conviction. So that the Lord was preparing my heart that when I heard the information, that I understood that if I died, I would be separated from God deservedly because I was being exposed to his holiness and his power and his beauty. And what is this that God became a man? What is this that this man willingly sacrificed himself for my sin, the pain that I've caused to myself and the pain that I've caused to other people? Who is this man? What is this that people 2,000 years ago, they went out into their communities and they went into Asia and they went into Greece and they went into Italy and they went into Spain and they went into India and they went into Egypt. They're going out into all these areas and they're saying, this man died. He died for a purpose. And we saw him come back alive. So how am I supposed to stand in that kind of information? All right, are these just a bunch of religious wingnuts? We see religious wingnuts all over the place. And a wingnut's that nut that sits there and spins really fast. People just turning in all different directions. It's, it's, it's my term, so I don't mean to be offensive at all. But it's just there, there's all kinds of weirdness in this world, religiously, yes or no? Like when you hear people communicate and we just, uh, there's a huge religious gathering in India. The largest religious gathering of human beings in India just took place. You have millions upon millions of people coming and doing these religious things. And I look at it and I read it and I'm, I'm left with why. They give me the definitions of why they're doing this stuff, but there's, no, there's nothing to back up the why and the information and um, uh, the process of what they're trying to seek freedom from death. For Indians, for Hindus, it's going to be there's a cycle of reincarnation. And through getting it right in one life, you break the cycle of reincarnation, or you break the cycle of death, and now you're exalted and stuff. There's zero testimony that that is real and evidence to back that up. But we sit in the real testimony of we watch historically the proclamation of this information of resurrection, not of religion, not of here's a new teaching, not of here's a new teacher amongst us. It's we sit in the testimony, this man was dead and this man rose again. And the picture that we're given here, we don't have time to sit in, in everything that's going on here this morning. But at the end of this section, Jesus is approached to the tomb. It's in uh, verse 40 here. Jesus says to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? And again, the, the weight, the opinion, uh, the, the attention, it's all on God. It's on God's power. It's not on some kind of religious weirdness. Look at the power of God is what Jesus is pointing to. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you 
that you have heard me. What, what confidence to be able to say, Father in heaven, I'm thankful that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they, here's the purpose, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So this is a sign that Jesus is performing. It's an action. The action that's the emphasis that is upon this is he declaring that he is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him stands in that power that he has because we stand in him to provide evidence that that is real and that is true. That is why he brought Lazarus back from the dead. And that action, that miracle, that sign, this is what furthered the amping of the religious leaders against Jesus. Not only do we need to kill Jesus, but we need to kill Lazarus also so that this testimony is wiped out. That's the purpose of this account. That's the purpose of Jesus's action so that he could give to us a picture of who he is, of his power, that over the next few days from this, when he dies, his sacrificial death, and he rises again from the dead as he promised that he was going to, that he told them beforehand, that this is going to be the evidence. This is going to help you believe and understand who I am. In the midst of all this, we have in the Gospel of John, they're confused. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand what's going on. Even after Jesus' resurrection, they're still sitting in doubts and uh, misunderstanding, and they don't get it. There's a process of learning and growing in regards to what this communicates. Now, Paul tells us in... Um, in Romans chapter 1, he says, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Again, foundationally of why we gather together, foundationally of why you have a relationship with Jesus, foundationally why you read the word, why you worship, why you serve, why you give, why you hope confidently that you have life forever is because this man was declared to be the singular, unique son of God through the power of the spirit of holiness, through his resurrection from the dead, which we're told the Father raised him from the dead, the Spirit raised him from the dead, and he himself raised himself from the dead. It's unique. It's one of a kind. And then the testimony that we have in the book of Acts is what? Jesus didn't die again. Those who witnessed his death, who witnessed his resurrection, witnessed this man ascend bodily up into heaven. 
where they're told and communicated he's going to come back in like manner. He is going to descend again and call all those who believe unto himself. That's the resurrection that we're all hoping in and longing for. We're told in Romans, after it's said that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead, that the gospel, the gospel, this good news that's proclaimed about him, that it is the power, the singular power of God unto salvation for whoever believes. Too good to be true? Too simple? Too elementary? too repetitious. Most of us have heard that message since you were little. Most of us hear this message every single time we gather together as believers. Does it ever get boring? Why in the statistics that I sat in in earlier, why are people turning away from gathering as the body of Christ? Does church get boring? Yep. Does church get weird? You bet. Why? Because it's filled with people. But when church, it's not a location. It's this word ecclesia in the Greek, which it means that we have been called out from others. We have been called out and we are assembled together. If we are not gathered for the singular purpose of who Jesus Christ is and his resurrection, everything else we do is empty. It's boring. It's weird. It's not real. It's not fulfilling. So why would I want to gather with other human beings and do a bunch of weird stuff that's not fulfilling every single week? I don't care about the production. I don't care about the smoke. I don't care about the lights. I don't care about the suits. I don't care about the lights. I don't care about where, if we're under a tree, big building, little building, lots of people, a few people. Everything is totally irrelevant if Jesus Christ is still dead. And this is where in the, our last few minutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Corinth, the church that's in Corinth, is just like the church in America. It's confused. It's messed up, it's compromising, it's listening to teachers that are proclaiming other things other than Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The church is doing weird stuff, the church is doing confusing things. So here you have one who is called by the Lord Paul, who was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that so we'll sit in in just a second, he's writing to this church to encourage them. But one of the false teachings in this church is that there is no resurrection from the dead. This life is it. So he's writing in, first, uh, so in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this is what he is correcting. The church's false teaching in regards to the resurrection. And he begins with, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, you believed. It's what you stand in, in life and in action by which you were also saved. Saved from what? You're saved from death, from the consequences of your personal sins. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, in emptiness, vanity. And here's the simple gospel. This is what I delivered to you, first of all, which you also received. What is it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. 
He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. And that he was seen. Who was he seen by? Peter saw him. The 12 saw him. Well, wait a minute. Judas fell. There's only 11. So Matthias must really be one of the 12. Acts chapter 1, for those of you who want to sit in that church fight. We don't sit in that. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren. So what's the important thing that's being proclaimed here? He died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. And he was seen. And the people who saw, this is what they're going out preaching and communicating. He was seen by James. And then he says, last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of time. So that whole Damascus Road experience of the Apostle Paul, which we don't have time this morning, but absolutely incredible conversion of a man who is in total violent opposition to who Jesus was and to those who were professing faith in him and to those who were proclaiming that gospel, he now became a believer and a converted man. And he says, so we preach and so you believe. So here's getting to the idea of the resurrection. So if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching, it's empty. And your faith, it's empty, vanity, nothing. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. God is still real. God still exists. But if we're proclaiming something that's false, then we are false witnesses because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. He's going through an argument here with their false teaching. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. Literally, your faith is powerless and fruitless. You are still in your sins, which means that sting of death is still firmly implanted in your being. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. Those who have already died in this body, they've perished if there is no resurrection. If in this life only, listen to this, if in this life only we hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable. And then this declaration, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And he starts to walk through here all these different pictures of imagery that we have of what the resurrection declares to us. In here, in the New Testament, there's eight. And I'm only going to run through these really quick. I'd encourage you to sit in 1 Corinthians 15 and look at the declaration of each one of these things about what the resurrection of Jesus Christ images for us in reality. The first thing that his resurrection images for us, it gives us a picture of, it lets us see and understand, is this whole idea of transformation. Because that which dies... In a resurrection, 
called out from among the dead, is now transformed to the living. When we look at what occurred in Jesus's life and what he has promised to a believer in him, there is a transformation. Here in 1 Corinthians, it's behold, I tell you a mystery. And it's not something that's unsolvable. It's something that used to be hidden and has now been revealed. I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed through faith in Jesus Christ. We shall all be transformed. And again, this preaches not just to the physical aspect of life, but it preaches to the spiritual aspect of life and death. A transformation is being proclaimed and taught continually in regards to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our life. The second thing that it images is incorruption. Every single one of you knows what it's like to have a banana on your kitchen counter and to watch that banana over a few days corrupt. It decays, it stinks, it dies. Lazarus' body was in the state of decay. His body stunk before Jesus called him out of the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ preaches to us in corruption. That in that transformation process, we are no longer decaying. Even though we're going to die a physical death, should the Lord tarry. That spiritually, we are undecaying. We are incorruptible because this thing that was corrupting and decaying because of who Jesus is, because of the power of his resurrection, and because of me stepping into that belief in him, receiving him as mine, I'm no longer decaying, even though this body, not my spirit. The third thing is immortality. Immortality has the idea of whether it's God uh, eternal, God is immortal, he is undying, he will never die, or someone who has been created as all of us have been created. The resurrection, through his power of his resurrection, we step into his immortal life immortality is given to us. So again, all of these phrases that I'm bringing up, most of them are here in 1 Corinthians 15, but as you read through the pages of the New Testament, whether it's the gospels or the letters, these are the same ideas that are being communicated. We sit in these ideas of theology and categories and all these difficult definitions, and all they are doing is describing the life that we have in Christ. The life that we have is transformed. It is now incorruptible. It is now immortal. Idea, the fourth one is exaltation, where Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And whoever is in Christ is seated in the heavens with him, no longer lowly and humiliated through the consequences of sin, but have been lifted up and exalted. Again, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. And then this also hand in hand, the fifth one is glorification, right? Uh, let, this, let this man be called forth out of his sickness and out of his death back into life, what? So that the attention, so that the glory would be upon God, that the glory would be upon Son of God. Attention, 
honor, weight, emphasis, this glorification. So whether we were in this position before Christ, you were abandoned, you were separated, you are far away, there is no glory, there is only dishonor. Through faith in Christ, it's being brought into his glory, being made one with him. The sixth one, it's like immortality, but it's eternal life. And eternal life is... Is it's, it's God's nature and his character. He has always existed eternally outside of time. He is the God who is right now. He is the God who was eternally in history. He is the God who will be eternally in the future. We now become possessors of his eternal life. The seventh thing is the image of Christ. It's like that transforming, uh, that transforming power that we see. It's this, it's this image that we are being pressed into. We are being made one with him. We are, we are being made like him. So uh, the New Testament uses a lot of language of putting off the old man and putting on the new, putting on the heavenly man. The last one is the redemption of the body. And again, as you sit in 1 Corinthians 15, all of that is this declaration of that the body that we have now, even though it is broken, people are dying, even in faith in Jesus Christ, that body will be transformed. That body is being transformed spiritually. That all of these things that we are hoping for in Christ in the future, it's all wrapped up in what? In our church program, think, but think about it. Why is our culture abandoning the message of the gospel? Honestly, I think that the message of the gospel probably lacks the power of his resurrection. Where our culture, when we celebrate Easter, it's about gathering together as family. It's about doing your traditional things. It's about this is, this is today, globally, more people will assemble in congregations revolving around faith in Jesus Christ. More people will enter into that context today than any other day of the year. Why? Because of the power of the gospel or because of cultural traditions? Because of cultural traditions. How many people are going to walk out of those gatherings with zero perspective on what the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually means? Because in those places, often, it's let's come together and do our church thing. Be sure that you invite everybody to Easter so that our church can grow, so that we can have more money to do the programs that we want to do. Is that a constant communication in our culture? Or it's we want as many people gathering, I don't care if it's here or the church down the street, as long as Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection is being proclaimed, praise God. Why? Because that is the power of your life. Because if you haven't stepped into the power of his life, that means you still abide under the horror of death. And that's why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called good news. As often as we gather together, remind ourselves of these things. We're not here to do a church function. We're not here to be cool. We're not here to be hip. We're not here for a show. 
We are here to proclaim Jesus of Nazareth. And we proclaim him because he died. He told us before he did it that this is a sacrificial death. This death, my body, what we participate in communion for, my body is being given to you. And the reason why is because the sting of death never touched Jesus. He was attacked, but he, was, he never missed. He was always holy. He was always perfect. So when he gave himself over, when he shed his blood, it's an action of love. It's an action of death, this action of horror. It's horrific to think about the cross. But the beauty in that is we sing about blood. Why do Christians sing about blood? Why do you take communion? This cup is supposed to represent the blood of Christ. That's gross. It's her, it's, death is a horrific image. It's because the consequence of what he was doing, because he didn't stay dead. And he told us he wasn't going to. I take my life back to myself. This is why we gather, because this man rose again from the dead. This is why we pray. This is why we praise. This is why I love my wife. This is why I love my kids. This is why I serve in our congregation. This is why I give. This is why I meditate and read and prepare. Not because of what I get out of it, because this is my life. I knew I was dead. And I know I'm alive. Eternally. I know that I am transformed. Ask my wife how much I have changed in 20 years. Not because I chose to but because of the power of the gospel. I am a man with hope. I am a man with joy. In those points of my life where I've been miserable, in my Christian life where I've been miserable, it's because all my attention's on me and my own performance rather than upon the performance of Jesus Christ. So worship team, come on up. As the worship team makes their way up here, I want to re-ask you that question. Why? Are you here this morning? If you can answer that in the affirmative that you're here this morning because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have the privilege to stand together with the body of Christ, with believers, to stand up and to worship and to pour forth the praise that he deserves for who he is and what he's done. For the gratitude, God, I can't believe that you've called me. I can't believe how you've changed me. For those that haven't stepped into that, this room, there are many people where you don't look to Jesus and the power of his resurrection. You may look to him as a historical figure, as a religious figure. I just ask for, I submit the question to you. Did this man rise again from the dead, yes or no, based upon investigation, based upon testimony? If you don't think that he did, I'm looking for the Lord to reveal the reality of that in your life. And we'll still love you, we'll encourage you, we'll help you in whatever way that we can. But if you can't, if you can't say, Jesus is dead, what is keeping you right now from standing up in this moment 
and saying, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the power of that resurrection is the power of my life personally. So that the question not is, why are you here this morning? It's why are you going to be here next week? And honestly, hear me. I don't care if you're here in this gathering. But I do care that you were gathered together with people who were alive because of who Jesus Christ is. Who worship him in humility and in truth according to the instructions that we have in his word. I don't want you in a weird place. I don't want you playing a church game. I don't want you doing your Easter traditions if they're empty of what Resurrection Sunday is all about. So if you need to talk to somebody, if you want more evidence, if you want to walk through the details, I would love to. And this room is filled with men and women who know in whom they believe. So let us stand and worship him.